I would be remiss in not thanking you folks. You have blessed our socks off. Now, I'm wearing shoes and socks right now, but inside I'm sockless. You've got a great thing going here from the front door to unsung heroes like Joe and Alan and Dan. I just, we've been very, very blessed. So don't say we hope you've been blessed. <laughs> we've been blessed. And don't feed us anymore. Listen, this is, this is the fatted bull. I hope you don't have a slaughterhouse here. And, but uh, we're grateful. We're really grateful. Uh, you all have honored us, but let, let me turn it around on you. It has been such an honor. I hated it to see all those kids leave. You are blessed. We've got an evangelist too. But just seeing that daddy over here up against the wall holding two, I mean, it was all I could do to keep from crying. It's commotional to see us old gray hairs along with these young families. It is way beyond blessing time. It's just tremendous. God is smiling, smiling on you guys big time. The reason I came along, I, I'm usually her driver, but the reason I came along is that old story about the old farmer. Everything's old now. I'm old. I'm an old guy. I can't believe I'm here. Uh, I was supposed to die at 40. I, I wasn't supposed to live beyond 40, but uh, this old farmer had a mule, and he put that mule in the Kentucky Derby. And everybody was just shaking their heads going, what in the world are you doing, John? He said, yeah, I need him in the Kentucky Derby because I think, I think the, the fellowship will do that mule a lot of good. <laughs> I think that's what happened. That's why I'm here. <laughs> the fellowship will do him a lot of good. But thank you. Thank you from our hearts the way you've cared for us. Your church has got a lot, of, a lot of neat secret agents. Most fun I had, really, most fun was out there in the, in the stockyard out there in back <laughs> and uh, watching those kids play. We were entertained last night with a concert by Ethan and Noah. I'm thinking, Noah, that's the guy they were all yelling at because he had the ball and wouldn't give it up. <laughs> but they played... COVID prison blues for us. <laughs> and it was ringing in my head all night and I, I, I'm on the way to church and I'm singing, we got married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout, which is not the thing you normally sing on the way to church. <laughs> we are, we are going to get serious though. The joy, the awe of being in his presence together without a stinking mask Yes. And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be ugly here. I just say it's just a wonderful liberty. I don't know, I know there's a lot of reason out there, but I'm just saying it's been a wonderful thing to be able to come with God's people and just kind of hoot and holler. It's hard to hoot and holler in a mask when you're singing. <laughs> but we are gonna get serious, and I wanna kind of set the stage for the right kind of seriousness with the word from Jeremiah 2 verse 13. In verse 9, God is bringing formal charges against his people. If you're a lawyer, you know how to read this. Therefore, I will contend with you, declares the Lord, 
And with your sons' sons I will contend for across to the coastlands of Kittim and Sea and send to Kedar and observe closely and see if there has been such a thing as this. What is that thing? Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. It's not a huge leap to recognize the Lord is talking to us today, to his church. And when we hear of people and church groups abandoning this book right here, exchanging their view for his view of himself, we shudder too, don't we? And we recognize we're exchanging the glory of the church for something much less. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word together, we pray for your Holy Spirit. There's a lot going on in our hearts. A lot of us are troubled. A lot of us are discouraged. A lot of us are had our expectations broken and, and spoiled. A lot of us have got friends that are going through great turmoil in their lives. And we pray, Father, for them. We pray for ourselves. We pray for each other here. We're your people. We're your body, the body of Jesus. And we come together here recognizing our need, our utter dependence upon you and you alone. Oh, Father, would you take today as a day where you are pleased to meet us in each one of our lives here, that we might leave this place refreshed, recognizing you were in this place with us, and you want to change the way we're living. Father, we do pray for Aaron young missionary in Mombasa, trying to get to Nairobi, trying to get to the States. And we pray for that family that you would just absolutely show your sovereign hand in all of those doors and political avenues you have to walk through. Thank you, Father, for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ where we can celebrate together the birthday of little Evangeline. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your many mercies. And for this mercy here that we take so much for granted, the Word, the living Word, the Bible. Thank you, Lord. We ask for the Spirit now to open it up for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll stand with me, I want to read from Matthew 21. This is Palm Sunday. This is a day when people just kick it. I, I, I love your music teams. I love this team today, and I wanted to say to the percussion people, that lady on the Congo was bringing some Africa in here, and <laughs> I wanted to say, cut loose, lady, cut loose. Yeah. Go, Dan, go. Let's open it up, man, because this is Palm Sunday. He's worthy of our real joy and celebration, because we know the end of the story. Yeah. And it's really not the end. It's really the beginning for characters like me, right, and you who are rescued, and sometimes your coat still smells like the smoke of the fire that you've been pulled out of. So hear the word of God. It's, it's the holy word. It's the inerrant word. 
hear that word. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey and there and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitude going before him, those who followed after were crying out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, shaken like an earthquake, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. May the Lord add his blessing to this word, this portion of his holy and inerrant word. Bless it to our hearts. Let's be seated. The commotion there on the way into Jerusalem was something. So bad was the commotion that the religious leaders were telling Jesus, you don't shut these people up. They were worried about a number of things. They were worried about the Romans coming down on them like a ton of bricks. Would this be some sort of political unrest that they would come in and clear out? They were worried too about the language used from Zechariah. Remember Jesus' response in Luke? He said, if these shut up, if these were to get quiet, the very stones would cry out. A lot of excitement. Palm branches. That was the national symbol of Israel. So it's like a bunch of people, crowds with little American flags on Memorial Day parade, waving the national symbol, having one thing in mind, that the only way to interpret, interpret Zechariah 9 was that he was going to come in as a political figure. Now make no mistake, the Lord Jesus is not just a humble, homegrown teacher. A lot of people on Palm Sunday make too much of his humbleness. He's the warrior king. He's the one who is described in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. Look out there, because that is a theophany. That is a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus himself. And he's armed. Huge sword. Remember when he approaches Joshua? Before Joshua goes into Jericho, Joshua's doing some reconnaissance and he's suddenly realized he's in the presence of the angel of the Lord. And we know it's Jesus because the very next thing is deity speaking. Take off your shoes. Take off those army boots. You're on holy ground. The Lord Jesus, the warrior king, coming in on a donkey. Who is this? Who is this? Let's ask the question from our seats there with the people. Who is this? They were hedging their bets when they say, well, he's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. 
If you look at the passage, seven times what is referred to is not Jesus, but the donkey. Now get the picture of Shrek out of your mind now. <laughs> seriously, seriously, this isn't no Eddie Murphy time. This is the donkey. The donkey who is the foal of the mother donkey. Seven times. The only thing Jesus does and says in the picture here in the, in the paragraph is, get that donkey and his mother. Bring the mother and the donkey to me and tell them if the, their question, the Lord has need of it. So, you know, you, you start looking at the Bible differently when you get a little older. You start asking questions, why so much about the donkey? And it's a clue to something that we often miss about Palm Sunday. It took a, an archaeologist in 1935 to uncover this business of understanding that vision that Abram has in Genesis 15. You remember the vision? He has this strange vision where some animals are cut. Sorry, kids. These aren't animals with names on them. Okay? <laughs> these, are, these are just animals. And they're cut, spread apart, and then something called a smoking jar or something passes between them. What in the world? And we find out in Genesis 22 that this is prophesying something that had to happen using the illustration of Isaac. But you see, what the language is saying is, this is the way covenant treaties are made. The treaty is made between two warring factions by bringing an animal, cutting him in two, and then the both parties walk through. But in J Abraham's vision, there's only one party. And it's God himself saying, you're not fit. You see, what the covenant treaty does and acts out with the cutting of an animal is that if some party, if one of the parties break any of the terms of the covenant, that's what's going to happen to him. And God is saying, you're not worthy. You're going to break the covenant but you're not worthy of paying the price. I am. I am. And so in that day, this was the way covenant treaties were done, but there was a certain way they did it. They used a young male donkey. Now this is tough. You know, a lot of people make a big deal on Palm Sunday about lamb selection day, where the family's getting ready for Passover. They have a little lamb that they've raised as a pet in the home. I bet you that lamb has a name. And then they have to sacrifice that lamb in order to celebrate the Passover meal. I don't know if the donkey gets a name. Probably doesn't because of what's going to happen to him. But that's what's taken to every covenant treaty ratification. A little donkey, a young donkey, and he has to be sacrificed. What is Jesus riding? Who is this? We know the story, don't we? We back up and we go, that's... That's the Lord Jesus. That's the King of Kings. That's the warrior king. That's the servant king coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, not just to humble himself, but he's quiet. He's humble because he knows what that donkey represents, whether the people get it or not. The people don't get it. Because in just a few days they're going to be crying out, Crucify him! Crucify him! That really doesn't matter. The things going on in your life you don't understand either. There's some things that 
well, there's some things that really bothered me about the election in 2020. There's some upsetting things going on in our country. The expectations that those people had were, hey, now we're going to get even with the Romans. Now we're going to come into our glory as a people of God. That wasn't the plan. King Jesus, riding that donkey, was coming into town to ratify a covenant treaty that a holy God was making with his people who had broken every commandment. And it's not just Israel. We get more of the ammunition for understanding this, this way when we understand Jacob's blessing on his oldest son, Judah. Judah, the one who the scepter's not going to be depart, an eternal kingdom, that isn't just David. That's Jesus. And what does it say? He will tie his colt to the choice vine. The choice vine is Israel. That means through the line of Judah, this one who comes as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lion of Judah, will not kill the donkey. He will become the sacrificial donkey himself to ratify the treaty, to ratify the covenant. Because remember, if one sins, there must be bloodshed. That's the law. That's better than gravity. And the Lord Jesus is saying, nobody, nobody can pay the price but me. And he willingly comes into town, riding the symbol of the ratification of the covenant treaty, made immediately with Israel, but past Israel. How do we explain how we got in to the world? It's a global site here, internationally. So this is Palm Sunday. This is what we get ready for at Palm Sunday. Because we know that in just a, a few moments from this, entry into Jerusalem is going to be some earth-shattering, painful implications and outworkings of what Jesus does when he rides into Jerusalem in order to establish the salvation for characters like you and me. And that's why you preach like this in Africa. People get up on their chairs and go, Hallelujah! Now don't do that. Don't do that. We're, we're not ready for that here. But this is what has to happen in the soul here. This is what has to happen in your hearts here to recognize it's not just a time where Jesus humbles himself and goes, No, what's he doing? He's going in to ratify that covenant agreement that you and I can't keep. He has to keep for us. What's, what's your righteousness you have to brag about? We get quiet now, don't we? No, I don't want to talk about myself. I want to talk about you. I love singing with you guys. It's wonderful worship together. But it really is the Lord Jesus on stage. It's him that we really celebrate together for what he was trying to do when people we're not getting it at all. You know, uh, you, you think about this business of the sacrifice that's necessary for our sin and our salvation. You recognize how happy we can be together as a church family. What we have to really celebrate together. The, uh, the time in my life when I came to the States, I was raised on the mission field in, in 1960. We were coming home for a furlough just as independence was breaking out in the country. And I came into a world in lower Mississippi where I was not prepared. There was no way to brief me for life in America. And within about three months, I had 
eating enough ice cream out of a carton. You remember those days you could eat ice cream out of a carton? Watched enough cowboy TV, and uh, oh man, I was in love with Hopalong. I, I, this is before you could have a man crush, but man, I had a man crush on the Lone Ranger, Hopalong. And I never ate so much sugar pops with Wild Bill Hickok back in the day. But I was ready to go home. My home was in central Congo. I didn't fit. And I had to make a choice. When we moved to Nashville, Tennessee, I had to make a choice there. I was a sophomore in high school, and I had to make a decision. Do I, do I just keep moping, keep holding up in my room, hoping the whole thing would go away, or do I try to get in the in crowd, try to be accepted? And so I lived a double life. It's tough. High school, double life. College, double life. And the years there, and work, and working for the airlines up in New York City, living terrible life. And then after I lost my job in New York, I went to Nashville again and started up a nightclub there and living a double life. Because the whole time, in the back of your head are these memory verses. Back of the head is the love of your mom and dad. One night I'm in the bar, I'd given the front bartender a, a little break so he could go outside and smoke. And I'm working the bar for him. And and uh, I've got a waitress in front of me, bless her heart. She, she's just a little dingbat. And she can't remember. She's ordering five drinks, and she can't remember. I've got customers on this side of the bar, or this side, and I've got the wait stand right here. And poor little Jean could not make up her mind what was the right drink for that glass or that glass. That's just not supposed to happen when you're busy. And I felt these eyes on me that night. And I knew it wasn't the police because we had paid them off. <laughs> so I looked up. To my horror, it was my father standing there. I'd written home one of those letters that you write, you know, when you want everybody to calm down and not worry about you. I'm working in an entertainment club. Don't worry about me. Listen, worry about them if they're working in an entertainment club. And there was Dad, and I got the bartender back on his duty, and I took dad outside. I was horrified. I was so embarrassed. I said, uh, oh, dad, good to see you. I was lying. <laughs> and dad looked at me. He had a perfect opportunity to preach me a sermon, give me a lecture, exhort me. He just said this. He said, we're standing out there in the dark. He said, son, your mom and I are kind of worried about you. Whew. You have no idea how much love came out of that simple statement. When you're running from God, you don't want that kind of love. I said, oh, Dad, don't worry about me. I'm doing great. I was so glad I was in the dark because I had dark circles under my eyes. I wasn't sleeping. I'd found out that the mafia was connected to my business. They had secretly started buying off shares. So technically, I'm working for the Dixie Mafia, and I was living on vodka and grapefruit juice. And I'm lying, trying to tell him, don't worry, I'm fine. And to make a longer story really short, I finally realized, you're crazy. Don't live this way. And I went home. I went to New Orleans, where parents were. They didn't give me a welcome home, prodigal son homecoming at all, because they knew this guy wasn't really the prodigal son coming home. And I was so messed up, I tried to kill myself. Recovering in the hospital, I was in a body cast. I was pretty messed up. And uh, there were these two nurses that just kept preaching to me, and I kept saying, shut up. <laughs> Told one of them, I said, listen. If you keep this up, I'm going to get up out of this bed and kick your... And uh, she said, 
baby, you can't do nothing by yourself. You can't even go to the bathroom by yourself. And after a few nights, I was thinking, I turned to the wall, I could turn in bed. And I said, oh Lord, what a mess I've made. Can you forgive somebody who's played it, played the game, even with the people he loved? Can you forgive somebody like that? But if you can, don't just forgive me, give me a new heart, because this thing is, I used African language for it because I, I, that's my heart language. I said, rotten to the core. And I went to sleep. Didn't hear any angels. I would have freaked. <laughs> Got up the next, well, I just woke up the next morning feeling weird, you know, realizing that it was the first good night's sleep I'd had in five years. You don't sleep when you're looking over your shoulder all the time knowing somebody's coming after you. Nurse that liked to preach to me, big, big woman. Oh, you don't want to argue with her. She came in and she said, looked at me and she went, oh my God. She goes out the, out the door and down the hall saying, oh my God, he's got the Holy Ghost. <laughs> that was welcome to the body of Christ. <laughs> well, you know, I thought, this is wonderful. My dad comes in with the Bible that he had given me when I was 10. He said, son, I went out to the car and it's a mess. It's welded solid. And he said, but I found under the driver's seat your old Bible. I'd carried it for a good luck charm. He said, do you want it? It had blood all over it. And I said, yes, daddy, I want it. I started reading that Bible. It was King James Bible, Schofield Notes. Who cares? That Bible started talking to me. And I was doing fine. I'd come home and I thought I was doing fine until I reviewed that passage in Luke, Luke 15 where the prodigal is on the way home and he's rehearsing his speech. Daddy, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I realized, whoa, he was ready to reconcile with his daddy. Because I've been sinning against mom and daddy for years. So I called his office up. He was working on the Superdome as an architect in New Orleans. And uh, he was in charge of the draft room and drafting room. And I called his secretary. I said, ma'am, can I get an appointment with my dad? She says, well, yeah, any time you can just walk right out. I said, no, no, ma'am, don't tell him who it is. Sin, sin makes you afraid of even the people you love. And I got up there and I'm on crutches and I barely get up there. The humbling part of New Orleans is riding the bus. And I somehow got to his office. He looked up, dad was surprised. He said, son, you don't need an appointment to see me. Are you at my appointment now? And I said, yes, sir. I said, Dad, i got to talk to you. And he said, well, let's go down to the conference room down the hallway. He closed the door and we sat down and I told him, I said, Dad, I don't know if you want details, but boy, I have really, really sinned against you and the Lord. Can you forgive me? He said, of course, son. And he started crying and I'm thinking, oh, great. What have I done to him now? And we laughed. I left, I got back on the bus, drove all the way back out to Gentilly from the city and um, coming up the sidewalk and on crutches, you, hot August, just nasty, you know, you're sweating like a madman. And uh, the phone rings and back then, we didn't have air conditioning, mom had a screen door that she always kept with the screen open to let air in and she said, Walter, it's the phone for you. 
And I said, okay, tell them I'm, I'm on my way up. And I got up the steps, got inside, got to the phone, and it was Dad's voice, and he says, welcome home, son. I tell you this story, I don't know y'all, but I love what I see. But I'm willing to bet that you've got some prodigals out there, some kids you're worried about. Keep the front porch light on. Get the welcome mat out there ready. Be ready, but be, be preparing for when he or she comes home so that you know what to do, because it's all about love. That's how Paul summarizes the gospel, doesn't he? In Galatians 5, we know that nothing else matters but faith expressed in love. Faith coming out in love. That's, that's the gospel. But you see, why I read the part about how easy it is to work on cisterns that don't hold water instead of coming to the fountain of living waters is that we too have our expectations. And those expectations are usually fashioned because we have learned how to worship. It's subtle. We've learned how to worship the gifts and not the giver. I ask people everywhere, why do you love God? And the usual answer, certainly the answer I, I used to give all the time was for his blessings, for his love for me. And I read my Bible and I realize that's not adequate. We've got to learn how to love God for his holiness. That's the vision in Revelation 4. They're worshiping, saying, holy, holy, holy. 24-7 <laughs> they're doing this. You think they get tired? Hey, man, you sound like an alka. You're going to the third verse. Same thing, same thing. Come on. No, he's holy. And when we, when we recognize our unholiness, really recognize our sin, and we recognize his holiness, we have that experience, maybe not as dramatic as Isaiah does, when he says, I saw a vision of the holy God, and I was undone. And brothers and sisters, it's best to be undone. I used to pray the pastoral prayer in church, and I used to say before, I said, Let's all get small in his presence. Let's all get tiny in his presence. And we don't have to be fearful because we have the one who is raised from the dead, the one who is seated at the right hand, who even now is interceding for characters like us. How I thank the Lord Jesus that he doesn't hesitate at the gates of Jerusalem but he chose to come in on that symbol of what the covenant has to have happen to ratify the covenant between the holy God and sinners. He himself has become the sacrificial donkey, but the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. When he dies and says, it is finished, don't make the mistake of thinking he does it this way. It's finished. No. It is the shout of triumph. It is paid in full. Everything that Walt has ever done in his life is paid in full. And my brothers and sisters, if it's good for the goose, it's good for you ganders. <laughs> it's good for you goose. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh Lord God, forgive me for putting my expectations first. When you can shape my expectations 
to center on Christ the Lord who is supreme in charge of all of it. We were talking out in the foyer with a couple of guys that are my age and uh, I was telling them about Nigerians who greet each other on Sunday. They say, Happy Sunday. And they said, What about Monday? And I said, Well, if we truly believe He's the sovereign Lord of the universe, even Monday's a happy Monday. Isn't it? <laughs> Hallelujah. Isn't that true? I, uh, I'm struck by a passage of Scripture in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Because I, I catch myself explaining how I got to be in the family of Christ. My parents had nothing to go on for six years. They never saw a thing in my life that would give them hope about me. But you know what kept them going? They kept praying. Lord, we want to remind you of a promise you made. That the salvation comes not only to us folk, but to our children as well. Now that doesn't mean just because you're born in a Christian family that makes you automatically a Christian. No. It means you're special. You have a special connection. A special relationship in grace. Parents, you don't have to be afraid. Don't bring your children up in fear. Bring them up in faith. Faith in your efforts? No. Faith in his efforts all the way. How in the world can we be a daddy? I'm convinced daddies are given children in order to grow up the daddy. Amen? I mean, it's great to have a wife, and that's your mirror, because she knows you better than you know yourself. You start out when... I'm all ready to go. And she says, no, you're not. In Christian love, she says that. (laughs) But those children, well, that's where daddy really grows up, especially putting them to bed. That's where you learn. That's the schoolhouse. That's the tutorials that's better than YouTube. But Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says this, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. I read that slowly, because today you have a choice. You have to respond. He is calling you to make this choice. Either you surrender yourself, surrender all your life to him, not hold back, surrender all yourself to him, or you will walk away today. You'll walk away because you can't have it both ways. I wish like crazy that a preacher had been able to preach that way to me when I was in my long run away from the Lord. Either you let go and let God be God all the way, or you choose your way and try to save yourself. Oh, you still must choose Christ. The verses that are read, don't, don't, don't leave that out. You still must choose Christ. I sure did. But this was at the work of one working secretly, the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ showing me not only my sin, but showing me my great need of a great Savior. So who's the first mover? Who's the first seeker? It's God. Great hymn, 
great, great poem by Thomas Chalmers, I think it is, but it's the hounds of heaven. Learn to pray that as you think about your children who are far off in a far country, and that could be on the same street you live. The first mover, the seeker, has to be God, the God of the Bible, the God Yahweh, the God who is Savior. That crazy missionary, Jonah, he was in his long run away from God because he didn't like the Assyrians. Ha, he found out that salvation is by the Lord. That's what we celebrate. We don't celebrate how wonderful we are. We celebrate how wonderful he is. So here, the salvation of the Lord is not something to be worried about. You have a great heavenly father who is kindly working in you, assuring you not to be afraid where your loved ones might be right now. But he's telling you, if you listen, he's telling you, I got this. I got this. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you. Thank you for the grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you're not one who's conditioned it. If we clean ourselves up or if we hose ourselves off, we'd somehow be acceptable to you. No, no, Lord, you are who you are. And you are the one who has set your love on us first. Oh, help us. Enabled us to be freed up to say yes to your full embrace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.